Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... Advocates for coastal Mississippians claim a proposed military installation could propose or rather could pose a risk to communities. Then returning home from prison is hard. Still, most people don't understand the experience. Plus, the state's ban on trans health care for teens could have repercussions. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Residents and activists voicing concerns over a proposed military equipment storage site in North Gulfport. An appeal brief was recently filed by Earth Justice and the ACLU of Mississippi. They are concerned about how the project was approved by the state's Department of Environmental Quality. The proposed installation could house explosives near residential areas on the coast. We speak with Rodrigo Canto a senior attorney at Earth Justice, about the case. It involves the decision by the Mississippi Environmental Quality Permit Board to issue what is called a Clean Water Act Section 401 permit to the Mississippi State Port Authority, which would eventually allow for the construction of a military uh, project, specifically an equipment marshalling area in one of these North Gulfport residential communities. And so the 401 permit is actually a water quality certification. It's essentially the state saying that if this site is constructed, it won't have negative effects on the water quality. And we're taking issue with that because the permit board in authorizing and essentially in issuing this water quality certification didn't do several things. One, it didn't comply with its obligations and its duties to investigate whether or not explosive ammunitions are going to be stored at this site. Um, We also are taking issue with the fact that the notice, the public notice that went out to the communities, didn't mention that explosive ammunition might be stored here. They have an obligation to do what is called an alternative analysis. They have to look at the feasible alternatives to the the activity, and they essentially rubber-stamped what the what the permit board said would happen. They didn't do their own independent analysis, and that's uh, uh, against the law, against uh, regulations, and against the case law of the state. And they also didn't do, did not do an environmental justice analysis. 
So this potential building storage is going to be near Turkey Creek and local black communities, correct? That's right. The fear is that it's just it's there's several and they're all very they're all legitimate and valid. One is that it's going to be one more source of uh, an environmental hazard in this area. So we're talking about a part of town that has uh, that is overburdened, that has more hazards than other parts of town. Another is that it's going to exacerbate uh, environmental issues, including flooding uh, in the area. Um, so we know that in order to build this facility, they're going to have to destroy some wetlands. And of course, we know that wetlands are important to, to uh, mitigating some of the worst effects of flooding, but they're going to destroy some of them in the process. Another worry, and probably the most principal worry, is that there's a possibility that explosive ammunition will be stored at this facility, but the permit board never considered that when they were actually making this decision as to whether or not to issue the permit, when they were analyzing how this facility is going to affect water quality. They didn't even look at that issue, and so they didn't consider it. And so if, let's just sort of imagine in the future, this facility is all of a sudden built, it's very possible that almost immediately explosive ammunition could be sited there and stored there and marshaled there. Now, how do you know that the permit board didn't do any investigation or research? That's right. So there's a process in place uh, and regulations in place that tell them what they're supposed to consider, and they actually did not consider whether or not explosive ammunition is going to be stored at this facility. Are you saying that because nothing was written up that you could refer to that they published or put out? Mm-hmm. We, we, we know that uh, they looked at other issues, but they did not consider whether explosives were going to be stored here. And that is uh, a dereliction of their of their duty as an apparatus of the state. They have to look at the issues involved. And so when they see an application for a Department of Defense military facility, it's incumbent on them to look at what that means. And they did not consider whether explosives are going to be stored here. Would the Department of Defense have a role in determining the location and making sure there are no hazards? So my understanding is the Department of Defense went to the state port authority, um, who's who's the one who requested this authorization, right? Um, the Department of Defense went to the state port, port authority and said, we need to we need a facility where we can marshal equipment. And so it was the state port authority that put in uh, this request for an authorization from the permit board. Uh, the Department of Defense is not directly involved in that decision as to which site ultimately gets chosen. But I am of the opinion that if the Department of Defense uh, knew or knows about the, the exact nature of this, of this potential site, the fact that it's in an environmentally sensitive area, a part of town that is already overly burdened, uh, the African-American communities that are up against it, I think that if they were to take all of that into account, they would be very reticent into placing this facility at this location. Why did you not reach out to the Department of Defense on this issue or name them in the suit? So it's really a two-part question. One, we've been focusing on the schedule before us, which is, of course, originally before the Supreme Court, but now before the Court of Appeals. We are assessing our strategy at all points. So speaking directly with the Department of Defense is not off the table. Um, They were not directly involved in the decision 
two sites, as far as I know, this uh, to choose the North Gulfport property for this facility. But sure, it is their request that eventually led to um, this process being put into place. Uh, Earth Justice actually inherited this case from uh, attorneys who handled the matter below before it went to this level. So uh, the decision to not include the Department of Defense was made uh, several years ago before we were involved. You've mentioned the issue of black communities faced with Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's environmental challenges or whatever, what mm-hmm. are these communities in North Gulf, Gulfport already mm-hmm. dealing with? Induced flooding. I, we have a map that was recently published, and I'm sorry, but I'm not intimately aware with the nature of the map. But it's just the fact that this part of the city, this part of Gulfport, has historically been excluded. They place all of the uh, environmental hazards in this area. And so this is just one more site, one more hazard for these areas. And that's why these communities are against it. It's just because it's going to be one more site that they're going to have to worry about. Rodrigo Canto is an attorney with Earth Justice. Coming up, returning home from prison is hard, but most people don't understand the experience. You hear about a simulation coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Thursdays, you can participate in the local MPB Think Radio programs with your phone calls and emails. At 9, it's Creature Comforts, where they'll talk about your animals and the animals around you. Get answers to your automotive repair questions at 10 on AutoCorrect. And at 11, it's Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, dealing with the health of your children. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Every day, hundreds of people across the Gulf South are released from prison. By many accounts, they're set up to fail. In Alabama, a group of students and professors recently got a taste of the experience. They participated in a reentry simulation. It's part of a nationwide effort to increase empathy for people leaving prison and envision a better way. From the Gulf States Newsroom, WBHM's Mary Scott Hodgen reports. In the real world, Trian Carmichael works at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and she's studying social work. But today, Carmichael is walking in the shoes of a man named Wessel. Been in prison, federal prison for 10 years. Uh, he has gotten a GED, so that might be helpful, maybe get him a job. Carmichael is one of about 100 people participating in the simulation. The group is gathered in a large gym at the UAB Recreation Center. Do you know anything about the reentry process? No, ma'am. So that's why I was like, let me see how hard it is, how difficult it is to see what they actually go through. That's the idea behind the simulation. Participants take on the persona of someone leaving prison. They get a list of tasks to complete at stations around the gym. Visit the probation office, the courthouse, the employment office. One station is especially popular. Excuse me, what is this line for? <laughs> State ID. You think you're going to make it? No. Absolutely not. As another participant puts it, the line for an ID is a million years long. But getting a state identification card is one of the first things people need to do when they leave Alabama's prisons. And if you make it through the line, you better be prepared. Um, so in order to have that, you need a Social Security card and birth certificate? Yes. Can I get a transportation card of $15? 
A transportation card is required at every station. It represents a bus ticket or a car ride, and it costs money. Some people start the game with a little savings. Some have nothing. They scramble to figure out how and where to find work and cash a check. During round two, Trion Carmichael finds out she owes $75 on an outstanding warrant. Was this unexpected? Uh, very much so. I finally found how to get some money. I was supposed to get some every week, but it is horrible out here. Horrible. By round four, things have not gotten much better. Don't know whether or not I need to go get some food before I pass out or go get my paycheck. I didn't pay child support. I didn't pay rent. It's a predicament for lots of people leaving prison. Across the country, reentry programs differ state to state. In places with higher incarceration rates, like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, there's often greater demand for services. But those services are few and far between. We simply just don't make use of the time that we have people incarcerated, and so they don't have a plan when they come out. That's Jeremy Shearer, an assistant U.S. attorney in Alabama. He organizes these reentry simulations for all kinds of people, community groups, police, even judges. Shearer says there are ways to improve the process. More education programs in prison, more job training, more treatment for people with substance use disorders. The best practice model in reentry is reentry begins uh, on day one. Alabama prison officials say reentry is a priority, but in recent years, their main focus has been funding new prison construction. As the event winds down, Tim Lanier addresses the group. Hey, yeah, I want to thank y'all for making me feel good today. I like putting y'all in jail. That was <laughs> Lanier served 18 years in Alabama's prisons. He's one of several formerly incarcerated people helping run the simulation. Lanier says, all fun aside, the activity is just a glimpse at how chaotic and stressful reentry can be. I really like the frustration I saw on the faces of the people that saw that they couldn't get things done. You know, just imagine that. Just imagine getting out of prison after being in there over 15, 16, 18, 20 years. They give you $10 in the bus ticket to tell you to come home. For participants like Trion Carmichael, just an hour of the simulation is enough. I'm tired. I'm just saying, forget it. I'll go to jail myself. Carmichael says there has got to be a better way. Because basically, you set them up for failure. They're going back to prison, and they have no help. So we do it. It's like a hamster wheel going round and round with no progress. Carmichael is finishing up her social work degree. And she says in the future, she may work with formerly incarcerated people and hopefully make the process a little bit easier. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Ahead, what has changed since Mississippi banned gender-affirming health care for minors? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Trans teens in Mississippi are unable to access gender-affirming health care now that the state banned treatments for minors. The law explicitly states the bans are for surgeries, hormone therapy, and puberty blockers. But it doesn't specify where those restrictions stop. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Rob Hill, executive director of the Human Rights Campaign of Mississippi. Hill says the vague language could affect more than trans youth. The last three years, we were able to kill trans medical uh, bans uh, for for youth in in committee. But this year was different. It was an election year. And, And so the lieutenant governor had somebody run into his right. He and many other Republicans, independent and one Democrat, decided to uh, bow down to far-right hate groups and uh, and the governor as well, listening to them and, and not listening to the evidence You know that this is medically based. Uh, care for trans kids has been done all over the country. Uh, all the major medical associations uh, endorse it. So it was, it was really sad to you know that politicians are making a decision that families and doctors should be making. And so it was devastating. It had an impact on me because I I know these families and I care about them and and I worried about them and I worried about this bill specifically. So we did everything we could. You know, we rallied, we we wrote, we uh, called. You know, I had a meeting in the lieutenant governor's office. You know, we tried and we got stories before them, but none of it had had an impact. So, yeah, it was it was really sad. Uh, I was glad not all of them passed, but uh, but this is, like I said, the one I feared. But we also saw this all over the country. These were passing in states all around us, and they had just in the year before in Alabama. And so you see what's happened in these other states, and, and obviously, you know, it makes me fear for what could happen next year. What has changed legally for, for just going back over to the law in general? What does it do? Uh, it doesn't criminalize no. this care, but it does make it pretty much impossible to access. Yeah, it's impossible to access, you know, uh, uh, physicians, uh, any other medical provider. The, the bill is so ambiguous. They're not even sure if they could be penalized just for having a consultation with the patient if they talk about this. Folks who've been practicing this uh, life-saving care for, for trans youth for many years, and, and now it's being taken away from the, from the youth and from the physicians and the other medical providers. Something that stands out to me is the 30-year statute of limitations on this current law. What could that mean for the guardians of these children and the physicians if they were to seek care and be challenged decades down the line? Yeah, that was, you know, particularly heinous. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's the huge fear factor that, um, that, these, that these families, that these physicians and other medical providers uh, will have, you know, for, for these, again, these 30 years that, until the statute runs out. So they, they wanted to send a real message from the legislature, from the, from the um, statewide elected leaders and the governor, um, and they, they, they did their job. But they didn't do the right job. <laughs> what were your thoughts hearing the arguments for the bill that it was to protect children. It it does the opposite. This is not about protecting kids. This is about making life harder for kids. 
unfortunately, trans youth and, and LGBTQ youth, especially or disproportionately, consider suicide and, and even attempt it, unfortunately, and succeed. Sadly, what I've heard from the youth is that you know this this care has saved their lives. It's made them happier. It's made them more productive in school. It's made their their lives just overall better. And then you listen to the you listen to the governor at the signing says you know. I love you. We love you just the way you are. Well, no, you don't. If you love somebody for who they are, then you love them for the whole of who they are, and you respect their gender identity. And, and so what was terrible is that we were giving them the facts. We, we had the, the, a meeting with the, with the Senator Filigane between um, Spectrum Clinic down in Hattiesburg. We, we, we brokered that, and it had no effect. In fact, the knowledge that he got, he weaponized that, uh, used it as ammunition. Uh, and, and did not follow the facts, but but he said in a, in, in a committee meeting before when it was passed, I Googled it over the weekend. Uh, we don't need Google deciding you know laws in our state. In this particular case, listen to the doctors, listen to the scientists. They're the ones who uh, can tell you what's going on and tell the truth. Uh, but they were just outright lies that were that were told on the floor and in, in the effort to pass this. Since the law was passed, the University of Mississippi Medical Center shut down its teen clinic, which provided care. Now the only facility in the state dedicated to gender-affirming health care for adults is called Spectrum, the other clinic in Hattiesburg. Co-owner Stacy Pace says the facility was started to help underserved LGBTQ communities. It never occurred to me that it would be so hard for trans people to get hormone therapy. I literally thought that you would just like walk into your primary care place and be like, hey, so I'm trans, let's do this. That's how everybody else is treated. So it just, in my little rose-colored glasses, that's how I figured everybody would get their cares. And so whenever we discovered this, we were just like, okay, well, you know, we had been wanting to, um, you know, build our own clinic and everything to kind of make an impact on the health in Mississippi. And originally we thought, well, maybe we'll just do an exclusively LGBTQ plus primary care clinic. But after tripping over and having, you know, this kind of discovery that hormone therapy was really the major need, we were just like, okay, well, then that is our mission. Of course, we've experienced all kinds of hot garbage uh, along the way, lay people in the public who were just ignorant lawmakers being quite rude and or professionals. We, we look forward to what the future may bring, although like because of all the stuff that we run into so much, it has not, we have not been able to expand as much as we had wanted to. Like I said, all these other setbacks and things, it's, it's a lot harder to, one, to find people that you trust to take part in this because this, this is a very particularly vulnerable community. And so we have to be very, very careful with everything we do, everyone we involve, anyone that we tell about, you know, our clinic. When the governor signed House Bill 1125 into law, yeah. how did that change your clinic? Prior to HB 1125, of course, we were uh, seeing uh, 16 and 17-year-olds, or at least, you know, Lee was, you know, he was a family nurse practitioner out of both of us. I was trained and certified for primary care and acute care, but for, you know, ages 18 and up, you know, so we, we saw 16 and 17-year-olds, and when that got passed, of course, you know, we had to comply and had to stop seeing them. We did manage 
to at least refer everyone out to other providers outside of the state, which thankfully thus far Louisiana hasn't managed to pass its ban that it has proposed a couple times, and its governor is now saying that he will veto it anyway, so fingers crossed that that continues. And then in Alabama, you know, they had banned it, but then it got uh, challenged, and so they're still waiting on the final outcome of that challenge. But until it has been heard in court and things go through, you know, they're, they're still operating and seeing people, not operating on kids. Obviously, that's what all these idiots think is happening is that surgeries are occurring on kids. It's so hilarious. Like, where do they get this crap from? But, um, you know, trans youth care is such a small percentage of the population that need, like, hormone blockers or hormone therapy that it did not, like, it didn't affect the clinic, say, like, financially, but it affected us feels wrong. Like, it affected us emotionally and morally. It just, when you know that the the major medical associations of this country and of this world support the care for trans youth, and then you are told that you can't do it even though you know how and you have the ability to do it, it feels morally wrong to comply with that. Uh, and so it's, it's a huge problem for a healthcare provider whenever lawmakers are legislating uh, how to practice various forms of health care. It's, it's ridiculous to me that this, this kind of stuff is going through with little or most often no um, input from actual medical or nursing uh, people at all. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.